Let's take a bowl this evening and turn to Haggai chapter 2. In the word of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, and let's begin reading from verse 10 this evening. Haggai chapter 2. Verse 10, it says, In the four and twentieth day of the, of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meats, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean, by a dead body, touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. And answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands. And that which they offer, there is unclean. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days were when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were about ten. When one came to the press vat for to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were about twenty. I smote you with blasting, with mildew, and with hail in all the labours of your hands. Yet you turn not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn, yea, and yet the vine and the fig tree, and the pomegranate and the olive tree, hath not brought forth. From this day will I bless you. And again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of, the, of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother." In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do, do thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come once again around your word. Lord, we pray that this evening as we uh, conclude the book of Haggai, Lord, that you would undertake Lord, I pray that you would give me wisdom and guidance as I speak, that, Lord, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts, that, Lord, you would uh, speak to each of our hearts this evening. May we learn of you, may we uh, gain understanding of your word and understanding of you. Lord, may we leave this place this evening singing your praises and knowing that we've been in your presence. Lord, may you bless now and undertake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember in, in chapter 1, Haggai had been given a message from the Lord to the people, and that message was to consider their ways. Okay, they'd uh, turned their back on the Lord, they'd forgotten the work, and if you remember, they'd started working on their own houses. They'd neglected the temple. And so in chapter 1, he'd exhorted them to consider their ways, to consider their actions and the result of their actions. And the people had responded in chapter 1 by listening to Haggai, listening to the Lord, and they got back to the work. They began building the temple once again. And then we came to chapter 2 and we looked at the first nine verses and we saw there that there was a message of encouragement from the Lord to the people. 
The Lord, through the prophet, encouraged them by telling them about the future glory of the temple. Okay, remember, we talked about the fact that, you know, as they looked at what they were building, there was discouragement setting in because they realized it was not as beautiful as what Solomon's was. Particularly the older generation, they were looking at it and thinking it's never going to be as good, it's never going to be as beautiful materially as Solomon's temple was. And so there was potential for them to get discouraged. But God encouraged them by telling them to look ahead and to see that in the future the glory of the temple would be far greater. And that, of course, was reference to the glory of the Messiah filling the temple during the millennial reign. And now this evening we come to Haggai's final two messages from the Lord to the people. And so first of all, this evening we see that he encourages them to look within. And then lastly, he tells Zerubbabel to look ahead. And so we're going to consider these two messages this evening. So first of all, we see that they're told to look within. In verse 10 we read, In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, As saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the Lord, saying, If one bear holy flesh and the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. This third message to the people, that's the third message in the book. This third message is delivered about two months after his message about the future glory of the temple. Okay? In verse 1 of the chapter, it says, In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month. So it's the 21st day of the seventh month, when he delivers the message concerning the future glory. It's now in verse 10, we read, The four and twentieth day of the ninth month. Okay? So it's the 24th of the ninth. So two months have gone by between these two messages from the Lord. And this time the message is about contamination of the heart. It's essentially a message about sin and the effect of sin. You see, the reason that the Lord had withheld his blessing from the people for so long during those 16 years was because they were defiled. That was the reason that they had not experienced God's hand of blessing upon them. It's because their hearts were defiled. Their hearts had not been in the right place. And so anything that they did during those years didn't please the Lord. Even if they were doing it, in a sense, to the Lord, it still didn't honour God because their hearts weren't right before the Lord. And if they wanted the blessing of God to now once again be upon them, it was important that as they began the work... They did it with the right heart attitude. They didn't fall into the same trap again. You know, yes, now they're building the temple, but the heart is still important, isn't it? Okay, the heart with which they do it is important. They needed to keep themselves clean before the Lord. You know, the concept of clean and unclean, you know, those concepts were very important to the Jews, weren't they? Very important to them living under the, the old covenants. You know, when we read the Old Testament, particularly the book of Leviticus, this is the main uh, theme throughout the book of Leviticus, those things that make someone clean and those things that make them unclean, ceremonially clean, ceremonially unclean. And here what we find is that Haggai goes to the priests who are the authorities on that subject, on the law, 
and he asks them two very simple questions. And these questions are intended to teach the people an important principle. So the first question he asks them is concerning holiness. In verse 11 and 12 we read, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with the skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. And so the first question that he asks here of the priest is regarding holiness. And as I said, the context of this question is the Old Testament law. In the Old Testament, when an animal was brought as a sacrifice to the Lord, that meat was then considered holy. Okay? It was set apart unto the Lord. It belonged to God. It was to be used only as God instructed, as God intended. It was holy under him. The priests and their families, they were permitted to eat some of that holy meat. Okay? They were allowed to take a portion of it. Uh, pastor this morning spoke about uh, Eli's sons taking the wrong portion. They took before they should have, okay, in a wrong manner. But the priests were permitted to take some of uh, this holy meat for themselves and eat it in the right manner uh, and to treat it in the right way. And that's what he's referring to here in this question. See, Haggai poses the question regarding this holy meat. Basically what he says is, he says if a priest is carrying a piece of this holy meat in a garment... And that garment uh, touches some other food, okay, whether it's meat or oil or wine or whatever it might be. He says, is holiness transmitted to that food? Does that food become holy because it's been touched by the garments? And the answer emphatically is no. Let's just read verse 12 again so you can see it. It says, if one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment and with his skirt <clears throat> do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil, or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, no. And so the answer is very simple, isn't it? No. Okay. <clears throat> Just because something was touched by a garment that is containing holy meat does not mean that thing is now holy. You see, the point is holiness is not contagious. That's what he's getting at here. Okay. Holiness is not contagious. And so having established his first point, Haggai now asks the second question, and this is concerning defilement. Read verse 13 with me. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. <clears throat> so the first question is regarding holiness, okay, and establishing the fact that holiness is not contagious. And now he asks a question concerning um, the opposite, defilements, unclean. According to law, someone who touched a dead body was considered ceremonially unclean. They were excluded from worship. They had to purify themselves before they could come back into worship and be part of the worship again. And it's to this that Haggai refers now in verse 13. He references this. And see, basically what he asks is, you know, just like he asked if holiness that's inside a garment can pass its holiness on to meat that it touches, he says now if someone has touched a dead body, if they touch those same portions of food, will the food be defiled, unclean? Again, the answer is simple, isn't it? Yes. The answer is yes, okay? It will be made unclean. 
So the point that Haggai is trying to get at here is that defilement, uncleanness, is contagious. Holiness is not. That's what he's getting at here. See, a sick child cannot catch health by hanging around with someone who's healthy, can they? Okay? But the healthy child can become sick by hanging around with a sick child, can't they? Okay? That's the point. That's, that's, it's very simple, isn't it? Very basic what he's asking here. Okay, we all understand this. That's what he's pointing out. The principle of transmission only works one way. So as I said, it's very basic, it's very simple. So what's Haggai's point? What's the Lord's point? What's, what's the whole point of this? Why is he addressing these two questions to the priest? What's he trying to teach the people? What's he trying to teach us? Well, thankfully, Haggai goes on to give us the application. And that's in verse 14. And almost, let's just read verse 14 to start with. It says, Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. Haggai's point is simple. The people who were working on the temple couldn't impart holiness to the temple, and the temple wouldn't make them holy, but they could make the work unclean by their sin. That's what he's getting at. Okay? They could impart their sin. Okay? Their sin could affect the work. Make the work dishonoring to God. See, it was important that they get back to the work. That was his whole point here, wasn't it? You know, chapter 1, he was pointing out that they'd forgotten the work of the temple. In chapter 2, he's encouraging them to keep at it, knowing that there's future glory in store one day. But just as important as getting back to the work was keeping their hearts right before God now that they were doing the work. Making sure that they were doing it from the hearts. They do it with hearts that are right before Almighty God. You see, any labor that's from a heart that's not right before God is going to defile the work. It doesn't please God. Indeed, it would even defile the sacrifices that they offered unto the Lord. That's the end of verse 14 there. It alludes to it. It says, and that which they offer there is unclean. See, even their sacrifices that they brought to God would not please God if their hearts were not right. The heart's not in it. You know, they're living one way, but then they're coming and saying another with their worship. It doesn't honor God. And so the emphasis here in this portion of Scripture is upon the fact that God is concerned with the heart, not just the outward actions. Now, during these 16 years that they had neglected the temple, the people had still been offering sacrifices to the Lord. They'd still been worshipping God. But those sacrifices didn't please God because they weren't from a right heart attitude, were they? The fact that their hearts weren't right before God was clearly demonstrated by the fact that they neglected the house. Now, if their, heart, how, if, sorry, if their hearts were right before God, they would have been serving God. They would have been building the temple. They would have been doing what God asked them to do. The fact that they neglected the Lord's house and labored for themselves showed that there was something wrong in their hearts. And so because of this, God hadn't blessed them. Because of the sin in their hearts, God had withdrawn his hand of blessing. You know, God wanted to bless them abundantly, didn't he? They're his people. He loved them. He cared about them. But because their hearts weren't right before, them, before him, he chastened them. 
You know, as we saw in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, at the start there, their economy had fallen apart. God had withdrawn his hand of blessing, their economy had fallen apart, and they were struggling to survive. And that's what Haggai now goes on to reference in verse 15 and describes those years. It says in verse 15, And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days were, when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat for to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. He describes how during those sixteen years that they neglected the temple, they had expected much in their harvests, but they'd reaped little. You know, they expected to find twenty measures, but found ten. Okay, they didn't find what they expected. Because God had withdrawn his hand of blessing. Verse 17 goes on and says that. It says, I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labor of your hands, yet you turn not to me, saith the Lord. God makes it clear the reason they had reaped little is because he'd smote the fields with mildew, with hail. God had withdrawn his hand of blessing. God had been chastening them. And his desire through all that was that they would turn to him. And then as it says at the end of verse 17, they would not. It says, yet ye turn not to me. So God's whole plan with the chastisement was that they turned back to him, but they continued in their sin for 16 years. They continued to live that way. They ignored God's house. They ignored their sin, even though God's hand was clearly against them. And basically what Haggai is trying to point out here is he's saying don't make the same mistake again yes you've started the work yes you're building on the temple but do it with the right attitude do it with your hearts right before god make sure you keep your heart pure before god don't do it in the wrong manner because you see even if they were building the temple and they're still harkering after their own houses and their hearts are set elsewhere it's not going to please god is it the temple might be going up but it's still not honoring the lord that's his point here in this passage in verse 18 and 19, he, he asks them to consider how things have been since the foundation of the temple. He says in verse 18, Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth, uh, sorry, hath not brought forth, from this day will I bless you. Basically, he says, consider how things have been since you first laid the foundation. Consider it. Look back and tell me, are the barns full? That's what he's saying. Are the barns full? And the answer, of course, was they weren't. They weren't full. And the reason was simple, because they neglected the Lord. They, put, they were polluted, and therefore any work they did, any sacrifice they offered was polluted before God. It didn't please the Lord. See, the point is, if they had been devoted to the Lord the first time, you know, when they laid the foundation of the temple, if they had been devoted to the Lord, their hearts right before God, then the blessings would have flowed, wouldn't they? The blessings from God would have flowed immediately. But the people were sinful at heart, and their sin grieved the Lord. It defiled the work, and so God withdrew the blessings. As I said before, basically Haggai here is calling upon the people not to repeat that mistake. Don't repeat it again. 
Make sure that this time they keep their hearts right before God and that their labour therefore is pleasing and acceptable in his sight. He's calling upon them to trust God for the future harvest and serve God from the heart. And it says at the end of verse 19, from this day will I bless you. Basically the verse ends with a promise, doesn't it? If you now serve me from the heart, if you focus on me and serve me the right attitude, God says, I'll bless. I'll bless you. It's a promise to the people. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, the Lord made a similar promise. Let's just turn over there. 2 <clears throat> Chronicles 7, verse 14. Second Corinthians 7, verse 14, it says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And Chronicles there, the Lord promised that if his people would turn from their sin and serve from the heart, he would heal their land. And that's basically the promise here in Haggai. He says, Serve me from the heart and I will heal the land. I will bless God declares he will keep his promise to them. You know, there is an important spiritual lesson here for us as believers, isn't there? That lesson is that, you know, in our labor for the Lord, in our service for the Lord, we need to make sure it's from the heart, a heart that is right before him. You see, sin hinders the work of the Lord. It defiles the work so that our labor is not pleasing unto him. You know, in Psalm 51, the psalmist David, he emphasized the point that what God is looking for is not the outward, God is looking for the heart, isn't he? Just turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 and read from verse 16. <clears throat> Psalm 51, verse 16, it says, For thou desirest not sacrifice... Else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's what God's looking for. A broken and contrite heart. This is far more important to God than any outward work, isn't it? Far more important to God is that our hearts are right before Him. You see, it doesn't matter how much we do outwardly. If our hearts aren't right, then it doesn't honor God, does it? You know, the Pharisees, they're a classic example of this, aren't they? You know, outwardly, they seemed to be righteous. They were keeping the law. They were doing good deeds. They, they seemed to be honoring God and serving God, serving God, didn't they? But God saw what was in their hearts. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Christ said this, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you like unto widened sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. On the outside they were beautiful. On the outside they seemed to be serving God. On the inside their hearts were rotten with sin. And so it didn't honor God. It didn't please God. It didn't matter how much good they did. It didn't honor God because it was from a heart that was defiled. Well, we need to take heed to that example, don't we? Take heed to the example of Haggai, the example of the Pharisees, and understand the importance of serving God from the heart, you know, in our ministries, that we serve him with a right heart attitude. 
You know, that we keep our hearts right before him, that we confess our sin, as 1 John 1, 9 says. Keep our hearts right. Keep a clean slate before him so that we can come to our ministries with the right attitude, not defiling it, so that we can serve him, bring glory to his name. So the first or the third message, as it say here in chapter 2, is that they look within. And then lastly here, he tells them to look ahead. Well, Zerubbabel in particular, he tells him to look ahead. Just read with me from verse 20. It says, And again the word of the Lord came under Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltil, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. So in this chapter so far, Haggai has encouraged the people to work, telling them of the future glory of the, king, of the, the temple. He's instructed them to look within, keep their hearts right before the Lord. And now lastly, he gives this special word of encouragement to Zerubbabel, the governor, the leader. According to verse 20, this message is given the exact same day as the one we just looked at, the one look within. He says, and again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month. So it follows straight on. It's almost like he's spoken to all the people and then he turns to Zerubbabel and he gives him this special word of encouragement. And so it's different than the previous ones because it's directed solely to him. It's for him. You see, Zerubbabel was the grandson of King Jehoiachin. And therefore he was in the royal line of David. He was the crown prince, if you like. But you know, instead of sitting upon a throne and wearing the crown of his forefathers, he's a humble governor of a struggling nation. This is the, this is the position Zerubbabel was in. You've got to put yourself in his shoes, don't you? He's a prince, and instead of being on a throne, instead of having a, a, a crown, instead of having a kingdom to rule over, he's a lowly governor of a struggling nation. And then, you know, that nation has been told by God to build a temple, and as he looks at the temple, he knows it's never going to be as good as the one his ancestor built Solomon. You put yourself in Zerubbabel's shoes and you begin to understand why the Lord gives him a word of encouragement to lift him up, encourage this man in the work. And so God gives him here a special word of encouragement. Firstly, in verse 21 and 22, the Lord makes it clear that even though the nations around Jerusalem were stronger, even though they were larger, Israel had not been forgotten by God. Just read verse 21 again. It says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I'll overthrow the throne of, the king, of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I'll overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Basically, the Lord says to his rival, he says, even though the nation around you look bigger and stronger and more powerful, I haven't forgotten Israel. I haven't forgotten Israel. He says, Rubble, you're on the winning side. You're on the winning side. You're my people. You see, the same God who enabled Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, the same God who helped Joshua to conquer the nations in the land of Canaan, 
was still protecting his people even now, watching over them. He's still watching over them today. He's still watching over and protecting his people so that his purposes can be fulfilled through them in the last days. You see, God is promising here that the nation will endure till the last days and in those last days, the Lord will defeat all their enemies. That's what he's referring to here. The Lord will defeat all the, all the enemies of Israel and he will establish the kingdom here on earth. And in verse 23, the Lord makes the special promise to Zerubbabel. He says, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltil, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord says to Zerubbabel, he says, In that day, in that day in the millennial reign, his seed will be restored as the royal signet unto the Lord. The royal signet ring, the, the, the kingly line, the crown prince, the, the one who's on the throne. It's a promise here that the kingly line is going to be restored and it's going to come through Zerubbabel. That's the promise here that Zerubbabel is given. He's given this promise. God says, I have chosen thee. It must have been pretty special for Zerubbabel to hear Hear the Lord say to him, you know, you're my servant. You're as a signet ring unto me. You're my chosen one. Imagine how that would have lifted Zerubbabel up to know that God has chosen through him. Especially seeing that Zerubbabel's ancestor, King Jehoiachin, had been rejected by God. He'd been rejected by God, but here God declares that he has accepted and chosen Zerubbabel. In Jeremiah 22, verse 24, we read, Concerning his grandfather Jehoiachin, it says this, As I liveth, saith the Lord, though Keniah, that's Jehoiachin, though Keniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. The Lord had said to his grandfather, I'm going to pluck you off. You're not going to be my signet anymore. And yet here the Lord says, I'm going to make you a signet, a signet ring unto me. And in verse 30 of Jeremiah 22, the Lord said this as well. He said, Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. God had rejected Jehoiachin. He rejected him, rejected him and his seed. But here, God, if you like, is renewing his promise of the kingly line to Zerubbabel. He's promised that the, the line of David will not die out and the Messiah will indeed come. See, God is promising to Zerubbabel that through him, the seed is going to come. And you know, this is why when we come to the New Testament, we find gloriously Zerubbabel's name is in both genealogies. Let's go and have a look at it. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12, we read this. It says, And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Shalathiel, and Shalathiel begat Zerubbabel. It's Zerubbabel, same guy. Okay, so he's in the genealogy there in Matthew chapter 1, part of the kingly line, the, the uh, descendant, um, ancestor, sorry, of Christ. And then if you go over to Luke chapter 3, the other genealogy given to us, Luke chapter 3. In verse 27, 
It says, which was the son of Joanna, which is the son of uh, Rehisa, which is the son of Zerubbabel, which is the son of Shalafiel, which is the son of Neri. And so Zerubbabel, again, is in Luke chapter 3. This is why he's in both passages, because it's through him that the kingly line is restored. It's through him that God makes this promise. He says, I have chosen you. And God kept his promise, didn't he? Because Christ came through Zerubbabel all those years ago. And Christ will come again and rule and reign here on earth. You know, this message would have been of great encouragement to Zerubbabel, wouldn't it? He would have known about the, the fact that his ancestor, Joy Chin, had been rejected. He would have known that. He would have known what Jeremiah had written. And now he hears from Haggai, the Lord is saying through you, I've chosen you, Zerubbabel. It would have been of great encouragement, you know, to hear that he was God's chosen servant, that God had a purpose for him. It would have encouraged him to stay on the job, to finish the task that God had given him to do, knowing that God had a plan for the future. You know, like Zerubbabel, we are special to God, aren't we? We're his special chosen servants. And, you know, he has a special plan and purpose for each of us, just like he did for Zerubbabel. Not only that, he has a promise for us that in the future we're going to spend eternity with him one day. We have a glorious promise of a future, a home in heaven. And you know, the knowledge that we are on the winning side ought to give us confidence to press on in our service for him, just like it gave Zerubbabel confidence. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. You know, our labour isn't in vain, is it? Our labour here on earth is not in vain. There is a glorious prize awaiting for us in glory one day. Now let us therefore be faithful in our service to him, serving him from the hearts so that it might bring glory and honour to his name. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Haggai. We thank you, Lord, for the messages that you gave to him to give to the people. And Lord, we pray you help us to take heed to them even today. Lord, help us to indeed look within. Help us to keep our hearts right before you as we seek to serve you so that our service might indeed bring glory and honour to your name. And Lord, help us also to indeed look ahead at the promises that you've given to us. And Lord, the, the knowledge that there's a home in heaven one day, the knowledge that, Lord, you will reward us for our service. And help us, therefore, to be faithful, we pray. And bless as we close now this evening in Jesus' name.